guys, we're actually recording in a totally new location today. For it's once, we're not in Ellie's living room. Very exciting. I know. Guys, we're at the Standard, which anyone who's been a regular listener for a few years now knows that I love a party at the Standard. We do. We're even on the spicy margaritas right now to celebrate being here. We're that excited. So, gang, welcome back, as always, to Straight Up, the pop culture podcast where we analyse all things celebrity and media, as well as all the records on TV, films, books and more. Anyway, right, today. Today. What um, are we starting with? So, do we start with Danny Radcliffe? Oh, Sorry, little Daniel. Okay, who, like us millennial Huns, was a big Harry Potter fan? Do I hands to, up. Should I tell my Emma Watson story? Go on always so sorry if you've been a long time listener you will have heard this but allow me like your old granddad that won't stop recycling the same <laughs> anecdote well it's not me. even get into the grandparents no sorry <laughs> <laughs> um so basically guys i grew up in oxford and my dad was headmaster of a school there called Magdalen. and so we lived in the school in the old boarding house because it was this thing i don't think it happens anymore but basically you you lived in the school because like I think the teacher's we, cottage. Yeah, basically, <laughs> I think basically my dad needed to be in school so much yeah. that it made more sense for him just no, to live in the school. Lots of schools do have like headmasters and yeah. other staff living on site. It's I think quite that weird, that's not that though, crazy. isn't it? But anyway, so we lived in the school, and um, which meant that I had a cat, and the cat very much was like part of the school and would like come on stage at one of the come on stage, yes, <laughs> to take an award to present no, one. So my mum taught at the school. Nepo, Nepo wife. And um, she... <laughs> Guys, there's a dearth of French teachers in the UK and she is a French teacher. So really, we need more people learning French and teaching French. Anyway, and so... <laughs> and so one time, Misty the cat came on stage as my dad was giving an assembly and my mum had to like run on stage and get oh, him. But it was Misty, it was the Misty. icon that was Misty. My stunning model of a cat. Oh, Misty. He was such a stunt. The school mascot. <laughs> he was a school cat. Oh, he had such a happy life, guys. He lived till he was like fifteen. Anyway, iconic life. Um, what is my story? Oh yeah, so on Sundays, Emma Watson would come to the school to watch her boyfriend who played rugby at the school play rugby because he was a student there. And um, so on Sundays, I would go down to the rugby pitch, which was essentially my garden, <laughs> and. Um, bring Misty along with me and think that the way to get Emma Watson's attention was to just drop Misty on her oh, feet. Oh, I do remember this story. And she was wearing, she would wear like knee-high suede boots and jeans and what, you know those like stupid belts we all wore? Round circles. The Sienna Miller belts. Where you look like a medieval knight. The boho belts yeah. that in yeah. fact you bought from shitty shoe shops. Not boho just at all. genuinely armour. Yeah. And um, I would just come up to her and genuinely put Misty on her boots so and funny. she just looked at me as if I was scum oh it's really sweet I was such a baby everyone wanted to see Misty he was also a beautiful cat he was a beautiful cat so like come but on. still did Emma Watson want her on her feet want him on her feet and can we just ask for the listeners who might not be acquainted <laughs> with the story how did that end up what was she did not the pick up my cat story yeah okay yeah come on but she just make a 10 year old pick up the cat no, that's abusive. She sh- shouldn't need to pick up an animal if she doesn't want to. But, you know, I was upset. Anyway, so back to Daniel. Um, <laughs> Enough on Emma. Yes. 
What do we think about Daniel's career? So, the reason we're actually talking about Daniel Radcliffe, we've even said, I now feel unhinged. Maybe it's because we had margaritas. Sorry, guys, if this is completely non-chronological. But Daniel Radcliffe is in the news because there is a documentary landing on HBO in November called The Boy Who Lived, all about his stunt double, his stunt double, David... The boy who lived obviously being a pun on Harry Potter. I find it wild that, so my bosses have never read Harry Potter. I made a Rita Skeeter joke the other day and they were like, who's Rita Skeeter? That blows my mind, like for our generation, because I feel like it's the most iconic story of our era. Yes. Literally. Rita Skeeter, his eyes were shining with the ghost of his past. Yes. Oh my God. That is the quote I brought up yesterday. Oh my God. I would have laughed so much at that. Oh, because there was a journalist who fell to peace um, where he, he said, uh, that he was interviewing a celebrity and he said the celebrity's eyes were shining. And oh, it's like, oh, it come off it. Of I was like, as if his eyes were shining. I mean, I've got to say, and let's not even go down the rabbit hole of all of J.K. Rowling's problematic general no. oeuvre. Let's focus specifically on Harry Potter as a fictional product. Yes. The, the actual analysis of the media that's done in those books is incredibly astute. Yes, like the Rita Skeeter character. Very accurate. The fact that it's all about how you shouldn't believe what you read, about how power yes. in the hands of the press can be a very dangerous thing. It's clever. And you know, she predicted gifts with her moving images of Sirius Black. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are a bit giffy. I remember when I was a kid, I just so badly wanted to not be a muggle. I have been searching for Butterbeer for about 15 well, years. Well, don't you remember when we had Butterbeer? Yes, when we went to Harry Potter World. Harry Potter World? It's called that, right? Um, so, yes. guys, we went to the opening of Gringotts, that very starry event. We were absolutely over the moon. We jumped on that bus to walk. We got a My coach. God. It was great. We need to, Kathis, we need to put the pictures on Instagram. We actually do. It's pre-podcast, guys, so no one's ever seen them. Malfoy's dad was opening it. I've forgotten the actor's name. Name now. Um, I can't remember. Draco's dad. Oh, he was like his name. Uh, well, in you in, know, in the films, he's called Le Luci- Lucian Malfoy. Sorry, obviously, we had butter beers. It was vile. So the butter beer was really the butter sweet beer and disgusting. It was like remember? a cold ice cream float. From what it I was remember. like a orange, a bright orange iron brew type thing with a big foamy <laughs> ice cream ice on cream. the top. Essentially, disgusting. it was not very the, nice. my idea of butter beer in my head is so beautiful. I know, I always fantasised about it as a child and then the reality was a bit sad, wasn't it? Yes. Anyway, sorry, have we actually said what the news story is? Yes, we have. He's doing a film about a stunt double. Yeah, his name is... What? David Holmes. They're both called David. No, he's called Daniel. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I don't think we said his surname. His name is David Holmes. And as we mentioned, he worked closely with Daniel Radcliffe across the Harry Potter films until he sustained a spinal injury during filming for The Deathly Hallows Part 1, which was in January 2009. He's a gymnast from Essex. And it actually sounds really horrific. He was pulled backwards at speed by a high-strength wire in a jerk-back stunt that replicates the effects of an explosion. Oh, God. So he was launched into a wall and immediately broke his neck. Oh, my God. I used to think when you break your neck, you're paralysed for life, but that's not true. He is, is paralysed for life. Oh, he is. He's he paralyzed. Yeah, is. yeah. So the whole documentary is about, I guess, his resilience of spirit. He's, I thought he might say, oh, I regret the time that I had, or I regret being a stuntman. And the quotes that I've seen, he was like, Harry Potter was the most special part of my life. I loved being Harry. And he's quite accepting of what happened. Do you know what? Daniel seems like a thoroughly decent guy. Yeah. I listened to Zezan Iron Discs and he just sounded so nice. He's been on a podcast before with... David Holmes 
they joined forces to launch Holmes's Cunning Stunts podcast in 2020, which is interviews with other stunt performers across Hollywood. And Daniel, so aka Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, just to be clear on the D names. Yeah. He said, I think there's a myth around stuntmen that they are just superhuman in some way. When the public sees something really painful or horrible, they think that it was a visual effect or that there's some clever, safe way of doing it. Often that's not the case. There's no way of faking, for example, falling down the stairs. When you get hit by a car, you're still getting hit by a car, even if it's going slower than it would. They find the safest way of doing it but it can still hurt yeah i find stunt stunt people there's stunt women as well very interesting i mean tom cruise how yeah. has he not died yet because he does all his own stunts yeah right? that's the whole thing with and he doesn't Impossible. even look mashed up most of the time it's not like has he had made i think he's like hurt his ankle and stuff I mean, he hasn't surely. had a major injury Daniel Radcliffe seems really nice and i'm trying to get him to do an interview with the telegraph uh about a year ago because he's in, he's on the theater. He does lots of theater stuff. Yeah. Did anyone see his him in Equus, where he had his naked penis on stage? Not that that is the main point of the show, but that is what the media focused on. Daniel Radcliffe has was, his. Yes, it was testament out. to how committed he is to his craft. I think was yes. It? I mean, but you must have known going into that that everyone would be just writing about the fact that you're naked. Naked. I mean, the, the the kind of focus on all three of the Harry Potter child stars, like Ron, Hermione, Harry, so Emma Watson, Rupert Grint, Daniel Radcliffe, was super intense. They're probably some of the first people that had, like, that spotlight on them that shifted with the creation of the internet. Yes. So they went from kind of tabloid newspaper fodder to internet intrigue. Yes. So, guys, an interesting behind-the-scenes media story on Daniel Radcliffe. I was trying to get an interview with him for The Telegraph about last year, I think, for a new role he was doing. Uh, And the PR was like, no, because he'd had such a terrible experience with the media in 2016. He had just recovered from alcoholism and he had also just... Uh, played a starving man in the film Jungle where he went I've on- seen that Have he's actually you? genuinely really good so the headline and I would be interested to know what you guys thought the headline is Daniel Radcliffe on alcoholism starving himself Harry Potter and the day he fell in love and that headline said the PR was so disrespectful to him and so tabloid that she refused to do any print media from that day forth and actually interestingly yeah Daniel Radcliffe doesn't do print media interviews and I think it wasn't just a telegraph, it was like lots of other publications as well focused on that. But it's what we keep saying in each of our interf- in each of our episodes. If you talk to the media about the fact you're a covering alcoholic and that you've gone on this diet for your film. That's objectively interesting. We're go- that's gonna be the head I to me, and I'm being I'm a bit drunk, so maybe I'm being too honest. But <laughs> two Maggie's in. I don't look at that and think, oh wow, twenty sixteen, times have changed. That's a very no, problematic headline. That isn't headline. a problematic headline to me. I think there is an issue and actually we, we've just recorded with a guest today it will be out in a couple of weeks who said that she has no sympathy really with people who put themselves in the public eye and waver a right to non- anonymity and then get pissed off that the press write about their lives. Yes. He has wavered anonymity. Yeah. And fair enough, maybe he didn't want to be, well, after he was a child star, maybe he then became mature and realised he didn't want to be in the public eye anymore. Well, that clearly didn't happen because he continued to be in the public eye and continued to do Yeah, he continued to take really big jobs that were going to require promo as part of that job. And I actually don't know how the public found out about his alcoholism, but I also think he talks about it in this interview. Yeah, and there was definitely a lot of stories at the time. My knowledge on Daniel Radcliffe's press presence in those years maybe isn't enough, isn't good enough. But 
people kind of knew that he was growing up in the public eye. I remember there being loads of stories about Rupert Grint, Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson at parties or taking drugs or whatever because mm. everyone just wanted to know what they were doing because yeah. they were like normal 18-year-olds. Well, in this piece... Not to say that alcoholism is normal, by the way, actually. No, I no, probably no, should no. preface that. But there was intrigue around their lifestyle, which I think is normal. Absolutely. And to be fair, I'm just looking at this piece. He gives several quotes about his alcoholism and his drinking habits so it's not like they've plucked it from some old quotes from five years ago it's like what he actually talks about in the quotes yeah so he says he gave up drinking a month after filming the final harry potter film interesting do you know why he started drinking in the first place he doesn't say but i assume it was just to cope with the pressures of fame i mean it must have been as it is with so many people who are i mean if I was famous, I'd probably become an alcoholic. I don't know how I would cope. Yeah. And I think the Harry Potter documentary, was it last year? The one that was the kind of looking back at 20 years, mm. did hone in on just how unprecedented the focus on Emma Watson, Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint was. Like they'd never yeah. been such famous children before. And they were babies. Talking of the pressures of fame... Cathars, I must read you some anecdotes from James Blunt's new memoir. Please do. He's one of the most uh, underratedly (laughs) hilarious people in showbiz. Guys, if you didn't know this already, get to know, because James Blunt is honestly so funny. Sounds really weird. Follow him on Twitter. Absolutely hilarious. So obviously everyone, if you are our age, you'll know, You're Beautiful uh, was probably like a massive hit. When was it? Like 2005? Yes, 2004. 2004. And um, then he became this massive joke for being just a wetter. And I actually, I I do remember at the time being like, this music is just so lame. I did think it was quite lame at the time. But now I look back, I'm like, clearly that was a really enduring piece of songwriting. Otherwise people wouldn't literally still sing that song now. So he actually says, so that, that song is meant to be this kind of like ballad about unrequited love or whatever. And he says in his memoir that it was actually written about the fact that he was really high on drugs when he saw his ex walk past him on the tube and he just like quickly wrote these stories about how he was so high and then the label made him change them. But that's why the chorus is actually, she could see from my face that I was fucking high. Yes, I was going to say, I swear there's a lyric about being high. So that's because the original lyrics were, these drugs are brilliant. These drugs are pure. No, stop. I Was that actually the words? Yes, of that I'm sure. That's too and funny. And the label made him change. And they tried to make him change the, she could see from my face that I was fucking high. And he was like, okay, she could see from my face that I was particularly high. And she, they were like, that doesn't work. Okay, guys, like us, you've probably been hearing all the buzz around medicinal mushrooms recently. And since we've started dabbling, we cannot believe how much of a difference they actually make to our overall mental well-being. From reducing anxiety to boosting energy naturally, it's genuinely wild. It's why we're so excited to tell you about our pod partner, London Nootropics, who make adaptogenic coffee in three very tasty different blends, and for which we also have a 20% discount code. Yeah, so as a bit of a wellness obsessive and a thoroughly anxious Annie, to be honest, I've been interested in adaptogens for a while. They're basically natural plant extracts that not only calm stress, but boost the immune system, turbocharge productivity, mental clarity, and more. It might all sound like a bit of wellness woo-woo, but clinical studies have proven that they really do work wonders. Long-time listeners as well, you'll know that I've been into lion's mane mushrooms for a while, 
But I do have to shop around quite a bit to make sure that I'm paying for quality ingredients rather than just pretty packaging. Now, though, having discovered London Nootropics handy little sachets of adaptogenic coffee, I just would not bother to buy anything else. I trust London Nootropics completely. They only use extracts that are super rich in active compounds, which is basically the marker of quality for adaptogens. They are so trustworthy, in fact, that London Nootropics actually display the actives in every batch of adaptogen extracts on their website. We also can't wait to hear what you all think of London Nootropics. So head to londonnootropics.co.uk, enter the code straight up at the checkout for 20% off. That's straight up, all one word, no caps. James Blunt's memoir is called Loosely Based on a Made-Up Story. He actually describes it as a non-memoir because he says that a lot of it is made up. But I actually think this is a legal... I think it's a legal get-out clause. I think a lot of it is true and his... It's just easier. It's easier to pretend a lot of it is fake because I'm not joking. Some of the stories are insane. Okay. Okay. Okay, hit me with it. Here's some of the stories. He was Lindsay Lohan's best friend for a while. Did you even know that? No, I They went not. out partying together all the time. He was living in LA. He was living in Carrie Fisher's house. Carrie Fisher is like the godmother to one of his was the godmother to one of his sons. They were best friends. God, showbiz is so like incestuous. Literally. Anyway, he was out on the town with Lindsay Lohan. They were going to all these parties together. They drop round to Jamie Foxx's uh, hotel room one night um, because I think the paps are like going out of control. And so they go up to Jamie Foxx's hotel room and he has a, a line with Lindsay Lohan in the toilet. Then he has an urgent need to have a party poo and Lindsay Lohan goes into the main room. James goes and has his party poo. When he flushes the toilet, it does that thing that's happened to all of us when the water rises and it doesn't flush and everything rises to the top. So he says that he didn't know what to do because Jamie Foxx and Lindsay Lohan and all his mates were in this room and he was going to have to say we need to call reception because my shit is floating at the top of your toilet basin and he's like I can't do that I'm embarrassing enough as it is because I'm James Blunt so he's like I'm going to instead message my mate Bear Grylls because fun fact Bear Grylls and him were in a band at school together called Limp Willie and the Disappointment oh I quite like that name yeah it's quite good (laughs) good. Limp Willie and the Disappointment and so he texted Bear Grylls and said what do I do and Bear Grylls said, you've got to eat it, mate. What? Eat it? So James Blunt ate... Surely you should just put it in the bin or no, something. so he asked that. Bear Grylls said, can you put it in the bin? And James said, I don't have a bag. But, I mean, so he ate- surely you could wrap it in tissue. Surely wrapping it in tissue is less disgusting than eating it. He said he ate it. And do you know what he said <gasps> no, he did stop. next? No, I'm going to be sick. He then brushed his teeth with Jamie Foxx's toothbrush. <gasps> he ate the poo? That's what he says. No, I can't. And this is why... I can't. Okay. So for a while, he lived in Carrie Fisher's house, which is just so random. She was the godmother to one of his children. She actually wrote one of his Grammys acceptance speeches because he was like nominated for like five Grammys, but then didn't win any of them, which is like an obscene speech. I can't even read it out, but it's in the book. And he says at one point, he brought in this Austrian like model to sleep with in one of the rooms that he was staying in. And um, they were having such violent sex that somehow she accidentally was like sitting on the TV remote that actually um, that actually connected the like entire house intercom. And so he turned on the intercom of Carrie Fisher's house, proceeded to have incredibly loud sex. And when they realized that actually they had turned on the intercom, um, they turned it off. But then Carrie Fisher turned it back on and went, 
I just want to know what happens next. And this is like at 2am. Okay, I need to know how much of this is true. I know, I actually can't handle the like some of this is made up. I need to know one way or another, did this happen or did it not? It sounds too real. It sounds so real, but almost completely absurd at and the like, same time he was the queen. if that was made up then that's a really boring annoying story and if it's real it's like literally comedic gold literally it's one of those. and he said he was the queen's ceremonial bodyguard which I guess he was because you can check that he started an escort business where he was providing young household cavalry officers to escort rich American women around London he called it company of gentlemen made 300 quid per like, cavalry officer like, that has to be that real that must be real I think you're right I think most of it must be true and he's actually just done this to cover his back legally and that it's made up. Literally. And he says that he was such a joke that when he was at the Q Awards, he was sat next to Damon Albon and Damon Albon refused to speak to him, turned his chair away for the entire three hours. Well, that's just petty. I know. And he also, refu- when they were both at Jules Holland together, he refused to have a picture taken with him. So at the end of the Jules, re- Jules Holland recording, they take a picture of all the musicians. Yeah. Damon was like, James Blunt has to go into his dressing room whilst we take the picture because I can't be in a picture that's with him. That's so rude. Yeah, and then James had to come and take his separate picture afterwards. I feel like that's actually just madly disrespectful. Like, I actually do that as funny. well. Do you know what I mean? I do feel really sorry for James Blunt because I feel like he was public enemy number one just for being a posh wetter. I like, know. Everyone hated him so much. And obviously he's at peace with it and he's made this kind of whole career out of being comedic about his ridiculousness. But imagine everyone criticising you so much all the time and you just having to deal with it. It would be a lot. I mean, he says in the memoir, I wanted to punch myself in the face. I was so irritating. But yes, I feel like eventually you can't be a punching bag forever. There was a very interesting story that I think appeals to anyone that cares about the media like we do, which I think was actually really clearly very true because it's actually quite, it's probably the only serious story in the memoir. At one point, his parents were driving home in Hampshire and some thugs are beating up a guy whilst his uh, the victim's baby and wife are like screaming in the back of the car. His dad gets out of the car and starts to threaten one of the thugs whilst his James Blunt's mum is like filming on her camera. And the thugs get so freaked out that the mum is filming that they run off into there and start driving off. Eventually, through his parents testifying as witnesses, these, pe- these men are actually charged but then released on bail. So the parents of James Brown are like, please do not release our identities because they might, like, come for us. Somehow the fucking Daily Mail gets wind of this, turns up at James Brunt's parents' house and tries to interview the mum. So this was all post-James being famous? Oh, yeah, he was really famous. And the interviewer was like, I've got the perfect headline, James Brunt's parents save poor man from death. Obviously, James Blunt's mum is like very scared that she's going to be like <laughs> killed by the the men that are out at large if their if their identities get put out in the newspaper. James Blunt has to then call the Daily Mail and threaten legal action, and then he says that after a bunch of expensive legal letters, the paper didn't print the story. And here's the lesson: the law doesn't protect you from the papers; only money does. Oh, Just, that's interesting. I know that he clearly, which is what we keep hearing recently with some stars that I can't name. Rumours have been kept out of the papers because they've just paid them off. Yes. Also, another interesting brush of the law. Did you know that James Brunt was a victim of phone hacking? And no. There was, so I actually didn't realise this. News of the World actually had sex workers on their payroll. They would hire them to go and have try and have sex with certain celebrities so they could then write about their experiences. That is mad. I had the, the setups. Set used up. to be so crazy. Do you remember they did it to Chalissa from Endubs with coke buying? And yes. it wasn't a real drug dealer, it was a journalist. So they set her up to buy drugs from someone that Mad. weren't drugs, nor were they from a drug dealer. 
bit problematic because you're coercing people into illegal behaviour. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like a genuine discretion. So he did have sex with the person from the news of the world that hired to have sex with him. And then it was written about. And then it was phone hacked. Yeah, and then he was, yeah, he was hacked and he said, how embarrassing to have my most like private like voicemails or whatever read by my parents. And also how embarrassing that his dalliance was with someone that was paid for by the I know. The but he settled, got a handsome payout. Guys, we were thinking we should do a News of the World scandal yes, special. Yes, I want to do a phone hacking scandal special. I think it'd be I feel so like there's just so much. There's no way we could cover it all. Also, it requires some deep research. Investigative prep from us. Definitely. If you agree, guys, do give us some supportive DMs so that we actually do it. Final thing, I'll sound James Rank Cathers from okay, a very fun behind the scenes media perspective. I was reading the book just because I was editing an interview with him for the Telegraph. And suddenly I come across the name of one of my friends and colleagues, Ed Cumming, who sits... In the book? Yes. Three pages are dedicated to him. When when I read this, the book hadn't come out yet. So Ed Cumming had no idea that he was in the book. And basically, James Blunt calls him a cunt, calls him a gammy turd. A gammy turd. Calls him snivelling. It's... (gasps) So I was it's a down. I was WhatsApping Ed like screenshots, being like, um, "Do you know that you're in James Blunt's book?" Like three whole pages. Was he like what? Ed was like, "What? No, hilarious." Basically, what happened was Ed, who's a great journalist, very funny, very funny on Twitter, was working for the Independent at the time. Interviewed James Blunt. Brexit was happening. James had done a kind, uh, a kind of quote like, oh, I just need to know what's going on Brexit. So as a Tory musician, because he lives in Ibiza, I can just know what the hell is happening. And that got compressed into a spicy headline, which was James Blunt wants the Tories to get the fuck on with Brexit. Right. Which made him look like a Brexiteer. He got yes. absolutely annihilated on Twitter, got loads of death threats. And, re- and did, I think, a big Twitter post calling both Ed Cumming and the independent cunts. Later that year, they go to Piers Morgan's Christmas drinks. As you do. As you do. And James Blunt met Ed Cumming there and squared up to him and called him. Squared up to him? Pardon? Yeah. What? I can't deal with this ridiculous. And so this is all relayed in the memoir. What is not relayed, which I heard from behind the scenes from a colleague who was actually at Piers Morgan's Christmas Drinks. Apparently James Blunt called Ed Cumming a cunt in person as well. Wow. But that's not in the memoir. Also, if you listen to a single episode of our podcast, he would know that the writer does not choose the headlines. So that is what Ed told him at Piers Morgan's Christmas Drinks. And James Blunt writes, then Ed Cumming starts snivelling about how he doesn't choose the headlines. That's in the memoir. Imagine being so called snivelling by James blunt the sniveliest snivelster do you know what of i mean all time. i mean this is someone who boris johnson called indescribably wet <laughs> he wrote that, that in a column for funny. the telegraph and do you know what this is in the memoir as well boris johnson writes this column james blunt's mum gets so offended that she writes in tim and says you know i am actually a supporter of you and i'm very offended i that mean you not have a insulted. great look to have yeah. your mum backing you in a national newspaper is it exactly. quite embarrassing Anyway, so poor Ed. Poor old Ed coming. Sorry, Ed, if you're listening. We back you. I do feel like you're just not safe. Imagine if we found ourselves in a celebrity memoir like that. We'd be mortified. I mean, I think Ed, to be fair, is going to get a lot of mileage out of it on Twitter. He can just repost everything (laughs) and be like, absolutely hilarious. But yeah, imagine being called a gammy turd by Ed. I do quite like that, gammy turd. (laughs) Quite specific. So, yeah. Right then, enough on Blunty. I quite like that. Yes. Oh, is it Scottish? Scottish. Ah, yeah, wee lass. No, sorry. Sorry, guys. Um, Cathers, we've had a request from a listener asking us to get into Wagatha Christie. Now, I will remind said listener that we have done an episode on this, 
but we can do another one. We did an episode on Colleen's Vogue cover recently. Yes. Okay, honeys. Well, I'll go in with what I honestly felt about the three-part documentary that landed on Disney, I want to say last week, maybe the week before. It essentially follows Colleen as she goes through the process of the trial. What I loved the most, I have to say, was the first episode because it provides this background on why her personal Instagram was like a lifeline for her at the time. Mm. I'd forgotten, I don't know about you, but... Wayne got in a lot of trouble over the years with the tabloids. Mm. There was a lot of philandering, of bad press, of stuff that was really quite embarrassing for Colleen. Yes. So the documentary opens with the latest in the long line of embarrassments, which was Wayne being done for drink driving because he was caught driving a Fiat belonging to a random woman after a night out. (gasps) Colleen had been away with the other kids. She was seven months pregnant at the time with their youngest. And of course, it was a huge story because not only was he done for drink driving, he also kind of looked like he was being caught in the act. Why else would you be in a woman's car? Yeah, why was he driving this other woman's car home from the pub? And Colleen does say in the documentary that the only times that she ever feels that she doesn't know Wayne is when he's been drinking like there's a subtext there that's very much when he drinks alcohol he's not himself and that's where all his bad behavior actually stems from so before we get into the rest of the doc why is colleen doing this disney documentary after there's already been so much press about her being kind of an icon and like in this like amazing trial of the year and why is wayne agreeing to do essentially like a beckham 360 on their whole relationship So I think it's actually about her having her say. That's what she says in the documentary. She's really not spoken publicly about what went down. She's turned up at the trial. She, of course, did the infamous original tweet. But actually, she hasn't really spoken about what she went through. And the Vogue cover. Of course. But what I found interesting was I thought, to be honest, there was part of me where I felt, do I need to watch the documentary when I've read the Vogue cover? Surely that covers everything. And while it obviously does to an extent, actually there was a lot more juice and mileage in the documentary. Very interesting. It makes it really worth watching. She actually specifically goes into the mechanics of how she caught Rebecca Vardy and all the rest of it in a way that wasn't communicated in the Vogue piece. She goes really into her... Wagathering, which is what we want, isn't detailed previously. Just to go back to the first episode, I think what was so fascinating about it for me was that it plots the childhood sweetheart romance between she and Wayne. They met when they were 13. They'd gone to the same school. He would play football around the corner and he always had his eye on her. Cute. He knew that she was going to go places, I really? think. She was the academic one, hardworking, studious, but also quite popular. She was kind of like from the subtext of the show, the the superstar of their year group, yeah. you know, like the girl that was going places yeah. and he wanted a piece of that. I wonder whether he thought that they would make an incredible team. Power couple. Yeah, he was already very much on chart to be a successful footballer. He was an incredible player from very young. I found it fascinating because I think of her as a very much a footballer's wife and actually the documentary does show how much she was a natural for the limelight. She really embraced being in the public eye. I'd forgotten about the various like fitness videos and whatever else that she did when Wayne first became famous. Like she was like a 17 year old that had previous plans to go to uni and actually and she just embraced this media career instead. I'd mm. forgotten about any of that. So I did find that interesting and I think the angle of the documentary itself is totally different to let's say the Beckhams because while it's looking at at their relationship from its earliest days, it's maybe, I don't want to say damning, but it's definitely more critical perhaps Mm. or more uncomfortable I think uncomfortable would be the right term than the Beckham documentary we touched on this in our episode but the the Beckham documentary does feel a little bit hagiographic it was made by his production company they focused on what 
he wanted. And while this is clearly Colleen's show, you can tell that Wayne is a bit like, oh my God, I'm squirming here, being held to account on my bad behaviour. So as someone who hasn't seen this new Disney doc, what I don't understand is why Wayne would agree to be interviewed for the documentary about his past behaviour, which I guess isn't that relevant to the Wagatha Christie's trial. Okay, sorry. I haven't been clear enough because in fact it is and that's what the first episode does. So as I say, it's a three-parter. It's not generally about their life and relationship. It contextualises why, as I mentioned earlier, her private Instagram was such a lifeline for her. She was going through a lot and the whole story in terms of things being leaked to the press began in the aftermath of that drama. Of him cheating? Well, he didn't cheat. He was drink driving in his car, but clearly that was not ideal. Colleen was very embarrassed. She was as I said, seven months pregnant at the time. So she went to go and stay with her mum. She posted on her Instagram from her mum's house and that was the first story that ever got leaked, essentially. So she posted this photograph saying, at my mum's, so grateful for the kids. That was then leaked as... Colleen is so angry with Rain, she's staying with her mum, yada, yada, yada. So an entire tabloid piece was created from this one Instagram post on her private Instagram. That's why they begin the story there. That makes so much sense. And do you think he actually does add, like, is it worth him being interviewed? Does he add Yeah, because I think if he wasn't in it, it would feel weird. Like, you need him there because he also talks about Colleen's mental state throughout the trial, about the impact it's had on their family more generally, about the kind of person she is... It gives insight that I think without him there, you'd be like, it didn't, it wouldn't feel authentic. And so, other than obviously both of them getting a handsome paycheck by Disney, you do you think that this documentary has been really good for branding for both of them? Just continuing this idea that actually Kalina's not a wag; she is her own person and a very clever person. Yes, I mean it definitely, definitely positions her as someone who has their wits about them, mm. to say the least. They show her go into her meetings with her lawyers with files and files of paperwork that she has organised, that she's put into all these plastic jackets. She's got evidence here, evidence there. You know, she was on it. And even the entire investigation that she did in the first place that earned her the name Wagatha Christie, like it was quite genius. That's why everyone was impressed. That's why we called her Wagatha Christie, because it was shockingly elaborate. Yes. The lengths that she went to, to to, I guess, figure out that it definitely was Rebecca Vardy. But what I also thought was really interesting about the documentary is that we had this quite simplified view of what had happened, which I think we all took, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but we took her tweet to mean that over months and months, she had methodically blocked and re-added every single person on her private Insta, which is about 300 people, by the way, so that she could get to the bottom of exactly which account was leaking the stories. Actually, the context that she provides in the documentary was that she she thought it was Rebecca Vardy, like, from early. She didn't literally weed out every other... Um, every other follower she had this feeling because and Piers Morgan is a talking head in the documentary and he talks about the symbiotic relationship that talent have with the press she'd looked at her followers and said why would someone sell this to the sun like who's got relationships with the sun she could immediately discount every single person she knew from Liverpool because of the very fraught relationship between Liverpudlians and the sun because of the Hillsborough disaster of course. so for listeners that don't know the Hillsborough disaster 
was a fatal human crush at a football match at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Liverpool were playing against Sheffield and after the disaster, the sun basically demonised all of the people that died in the Mm. accident and they published false stories about the nature of the fans at the time. It was awful. It was really, really awful. I'm going to do a disservice by trying to give a top line on it now, but go and look into it. It's one of the most important stories in British history when it comes to media narrative and how they have the power to shape public perception. That's all a long-winded way of saying that Liverpudlians really don't like the sun. So she could completely discount anyone from home immediately. She also then knew that there were other people that just wouldn't be likely to do it. She had this very strong feeling from the get-go that it must be someone who wants to have favourable coverage elsewhere. She started to notice, conveniently, that Rebecca Vardy, a relatively unknown wag, really, was getting incredibly positive coverage from The Sun. So the first person that she ever confided in was her PR, Rachel Monk. And she went to Rachel and said, look, I've got a feeling that someone is leaking these stories. This keeps happening. Someone on my private Insta is giving away really, really personal information. And I need to find out how it, who it is. I think it might be Rebecca Vardy. Rachel Mont goes and looks into it and is like, hold the phone. Why are all these exclusives running in the sun about Rebecca Vardy's like inane personal life details? Like the fact that she eats a stir fry or does this exercise. Like they're not connected to brand deals. This is highly suspicious. Why? Interesting. We, we didn't know that before. That yeah, exactly. Link. So it was quite fascinating from a media perspective yeah. because as I say it had Piers Morgan it had Rachel Monk talking about the real nature of PR and how in the biggest tabloid newspaper in the country you do not get coverage like that without something going on behind the scenes yes. you're a relatively unknown person and these are boring anodyne details about your life like why are they being covered so interesting so one of the listeners actually pointed out that there was a class issue which, which we get into a lot in our episode about her Vogue cover so I thought like Absolutely. maybe we shouldn't cover it here because guys if you want to hear our discussion on that you can go back to our Vogue Clean cover girl episode absolutely and there is definitely a class issue when it comes to Vogue and who they decide to put on the cover it was a bit of a breakthrough to see Colleen Rooney on the cover of Vogue it was amazing I loved it. She's fabulous. That's the thing. I was watching the documentary and Marlon even came in and was like, what the hell are you watching? Because he was so unused yeah. to a strong Liverpudlian accent being the narrative voice on a show like that. I thought what was really funny, though, is when they go into the specifics of the Mexico gender selection story. Colleen had been thinking about all of this as a fake story. She wanted to come up with something absurd but still believable. Yes. And she was smart. She had her PR hat on. She knew that all the coverage around her was primarily focused on the fact that they had four boys. She She actually doesn't care they have four boys, not that deep to her. But she knew that the public and newspaper fascination was with the idea that they'd had a fourth child. It was a boy. Therefore, their heartbreak was about wanting a girl. Mm. Super funny because she mentions that Wayne had actually had a vasectomy because they didn't want any more kids. Like they were like, four is enough. That is it. So when she leaked the fake gender selection story, i.e. we're going to Mexico to get gender selection. In fact, they were just on a family holiday. She did it knowing that it was factually impossible. Right. So that's why she chose that story. So it's even more funny that journalists don't fact check. And it's ridiculous that the entire nation's tabloids was publishing that story that would literally be biologically impossible. Wayne cannot have any more children. So she'd come up with stories that felt believable and enticing, but were still like not realistic. So easy to disprove when she... 
I mean, yeah. Very smart. And she didn't speak to anyone about what she did. I know she mentions this the Vogue piece, but I thought it was really fascinating just how much she kept her clothes close to her chest. Mm. Like, Wayne didn't even know. But she, what the documentary does focus on is how, A, she never anticipated that it would go to libel trial. She never would have sent that tweet otherwise. But B, just what A told the, the court case took on her. And I think at the beginning, they were pretty confident that Rebecca Vardy was going to win. In a way, this has all been worth it for a complete revamp of Colleen Rooney's image. Yes. You've come out of this smelling of roses. As you say, we have this quite 2D understanding of who she is. In fact, she's a highly capable, highly intelligent, go-getting woman. And I think the documentary is testament to that. I mean, it's even mad with Victoria Beckham being one of the Spice Girls and yet she was somehow still then downgraded to WAG. That's the thing. I think the position of WAG is always one of that we societally deride. They've got such a bad rep. I mean, this is a massive side note, but I've been thinking about Footballers Wives quite a lot, having watched this documentary and also... The Beckham one. Did you watch Footballers Wives, the drama, when no, we were I didn't. growing up? Oh, no, that's really sad. Okay. I'm so sorry, babe. Because Footballers Wives, I think, were just like the pinnacle of society. Like, yeah. I wanted to be a wag. That was my Did goal. Did you? In life. Yeah, because I was like, they're the, the goddesses, I suppose. But I Which didn't. Which is so I interesting just... because they were just aesthetic goddesses. Yeah, I, I was too young at the time to understand the absolute pillaging that they were yeah. getting elsewhere. I think what's super interesting and gives me. Some some real empathy for both Colleen and Victoria is just how hard it is to actually be a footballer's wife, which sounds ridiculous because the position, of course, comes with more privilege than 99.9% of the population of ever mm. experience. But it also, I suppose, speaks to quite a common experience for women in terms of subsuming your life to your partner's professional career. They just have had to follow their husbands around the world. And it really goes into how depressed she was in America. So it's quite similar to Victoria when she talks about living in Spain, being completely isolated from anyone else they know. The Roonies moved to Washington and Colleen's mental health literally like went through the floor. I felt so sorry for Victoria in that part of the Beckham documentary being like, of course you're going to, when everyone tried to mount this PR offensive, like, oh, she hates Spain. It's like, no, she just doesn't want to not live in the place she feels comfortable. Yeah, and Colleen is a real homebody. She literally had lived on the same street as her parents her entire life she'd never gone more than a couple of days without being around her family Hans we have the best news for those of you based in London okay how would you like to go to the best fitness classes in the capital for free yep you heard me right without spending a penny it's all so exciting and it's thanks to our amazing partner Yonder which as regular listeners will know is this incredible lifestyle credit card that allows you to earn points for every pound you spend that you can then redeem at a selection of lifestyle experiences across the city so from restaurants and bars to shops hotels gyms and more so what's really fun is that the reward partners change each month so loads to choose from and this month they've partnered with boxing club co-box which describes itself as where fight club meets nightclub and then there's boom cycle which is apparently a party on a bike cathars that sounds like a bit of us and actually it's a fab thing to do for when you want to swap the pub for something just a little bit more wholesome but still hang out so i am defo up for that also guys the point system is so good that the other night i went to 45 german street one of my favorite restaurants and i used my points with my boyfriends to get the entire 175 pound meal for free also guys good to know the 15 pounds monthly yonder card fee includes comprehensive travel insurance so compared to other credit cards on the market it feels well worth the money thank you so much to our amazing partner yonder get your first month free 
free and 10,000 points when you join, then it's £15 a month thereafter. Please do make sure you borrow responsibly. T's and C's apply. Rep 66.7% APR variable. So, Catherine, this betrays my lack of perhaps respect for Colleen Rooney in her own right. What does she actually do? (laughs) Sorry. I mean, now I feel quite awkward for being responsible for having to relay that to you because I'm not going to lie I sort of don't know um, <laughs> I feel really she bad she doesn't now. have a business no but she has done lots of things like that is what the documentary does show I was like, like I forgot what? that she was her own celebrity like she did all this fitness stuff she wrote books like she I don't know she definitely made the most of the fact that her partner was in the public eye let's Fine. say that she took those opportunities with both hands well that is good but what is next for Colleen oh okay Rooney? so she had a celebrity column for Closer called oh, Welcome to My World. Which she wrote herself. She then went and left Closer to go to OK Magazine for a weekly fashion and news column, which they do touch on, in fact, in the documentary. And I was like, wow. Guys, I would like to tell you now the way these columns are written, because I think it's probably quite interesting. People yes, have no idea. So, because I obviously oversee this quite a lot at The Telegraph. The celebrity is not writing the column. No. <laughs> the celebrity is on the phone being interviewed by a journalist. The journalist then removes 80% of that interview to re- to keep 10% of what's actually interesting and then writes it up as if the celebrity had had written it themselves. So fun fact, my uncle, who you yes. know, who is also a journalist, he used to be at The Times and he used to write Tara Palmer Tompkinson's party column. Oh. He was the anonymous author. That's quite fun. So, yeah, you, I mean, and then you get them to sign off. It's what's known as an authored piece. It's basically the transcript of an as interview. As told to. Yes, as told to, exactly. She, in 2005, sold an exercise DVD entitled Colleen McCoughlin's Brand New Body Workout, which became a bestseller in the United Kingdom. And she was then paid three million to front a Georgia Asda campaign. So one thing I will say is she got her own buck. She got her bag. Well, Christ, okay. She even had a deal with retail and gambling company Littlewoods. I have to say I didn't know Littlewoods also were involved in gambling. No. Her autobiography came out in 2007. I mean, there will certainly be a follow-up to that. So they will surely. There must be, because they're going to try and get some more mileage out of this, surely. Like an amateur sleuthing guide. Sleuth it yourself. So I would say, from a journalistic perspective, it is actually interesting. Um, now, on to more journalistic perspectives. I did read a very funny review of this show by Anita Singh, who's a very funny TV columnist, because she gave it two stars out of five and said it was incredibly boring because it refused to acknowledge how funny inherently the trial is. Was I mean, it was, but I will say some of the talking heads in the documentary do point to this. So Hadley Friedman, the journalist from The Guardian, is a talking head there. It's actually strange because... Why on earth is she a talking head? Well, I've only ever... Because she was literally there. She oh, says right. it was the best ticket of her career, better oh, than the Met cool. Gala, anything. Oh, going really? to the Wagatha Christie trial was... My God, I can't speak. <laughs> Sorry. The Wagatha Christie trial <laughs> was literally the hottest ticket that she's ever had in her entire journalism career. But she and Piers Morgan both speak to this fact that while it was a national laughing stock, we all thought it was absurd, ridiculous. It spawned numerous jokes, takedowns, whatever else. For the people in question, it was very serious. Like, this was reputational damage that is going to last a lifetime. Oh, that's true. Like, if Colleen had actually been found guilty of libeling Rebecca, she'd be done. And equally, Rebecca, I mean, it's not been a great look, has it? Let's face it. What the hell is she going to do? God knows. Does she even have fans? She still denies to this day that she leaked it, which I think at this point. Rebecca was 
ultimately found to be responsible, but actually it was Caroline Watts, her agent, that leaked the information. So, so they were in cahoots. Who's the one that said she dropped her phone at the bottom of the ocean? That was Caroline Watts. She so didn't turn up at the trial because she said it was like too much of an impact on her mental health. I would like a mini episode on the future of Caroline Watts because I mean, surely fuck knows her career was <laughs> over. That's for sure. I mean, what a shit show. Rebecca Vardy's a moron. That's why I have to say you do realise because she did a lot more like obvious things that I hadn't picked up on in the Vogue piece, for example. Basically, Rebecca Vardy would check in with Colleen over text in this way that was. Kind of obvious. So at one point, Colleen unfollows Rebecca Vardy and removes Rebecca Vardy from her private account. So she's known. Rebecca Vardy texted her and was like, hey, hun, just noticed that you've unfollowed me and that also I don't seem to be following you. I mean, that is so suspicious. Colleen said she was like, massive red alarm immediately. How have you noticed? Why in the 30 minutes since I've removed you from my profile have you already clocked it? That is not clever really dumb oh dear well would you watch a disney documentary from Re- rebecca vardy's uh perspective <laughs> i would i'll I tell you that would after that yeah it'd be funny as fuck it would be <laughs> see how she as i say she still denies it so it's kind of awkward like that's how colleen moves the documentary as well she's like i do have closure but i also sort of don't because she's never acknowledged and said yes it was me let's move on and does rebecca have you know, personal wealth because her career is now over. I mean, she must to an extent in that her husband's a, a major footballer. And are they going strong? I think so. Because she was pregnant herself when this all happened. And so Rebecca Vardy was like, what the fuck? How can you do this to me? I'm pregnant, blah, blah, blah. She did get really horrific trolling that is not excusable. I want to be very no. clear about that. But it was a f- serious financial burden, they say. The whole trial costs, in terms of legal costs, were about three million quid, and Rebecca Bardi has to pay for them. Oh my god! Because Kalima. also, and this is me being very bitchy and just casting aspersions, but um, surely it's not attractive for you as the husband or partner or whatever for your partner to be exposed to oh this lying, laughing stock. Because the other thing that she did, which is exposed at trial because essentially Colleen's lawyers without a single smoking gun piece of evidence that showed with on a shadow of a doubt she leaked the information they had to build a kind of context that showed Rebecca Vardy to be that kind of person mm. so for one they showcase a story that she sold to a paper when she used to go out with Peter Andre oh yeah when she was Rebecca Nicholson. So he had a little willy. A little chipolata. No. And how he like sweated all over. Like a really gross, oh very personal sexualised story. I mean, I th- this is another podcast for another day. But one thing I do want to talk about at some point is just how like narcissistic and toxic Peter Andre is now being we exposed as being. We have to do we actually a have whole to talk special about Peter Andre. But yeah, their lawyers were like, clearly you are someone that sells stories on people. And then also what they did have evidence on in terms of messages between Rebecca Vardy and Caroline Watts was she sold a story on one of Jamie Vardy's footballing colleagues and I can't remember his name exactly now it escapes me but one of his fellow footballers from his club got into a car accident it was a drink driving thing and she sold the story on her husband's teammate and was like I need a fee for it so her the whole root of this right is that Rebecca Vardy wants to gain quick cash from selling stories or is it not just it's cash so for the story that I just mentioned about the other footballer she was like I want a fee for this with the Colleen type stories I think and the documentary hints at the fact that Colleen is the biggest celebrity she knew therefore she could use it as I guess like a gambling calling card leverage exactly she found out very quickly that Rebecca Vardy was very good friends with the deputy editor of The Sun on Sunday 
Right. And that's how they started to be even more suspicious because they were like, she has direct connections at the sun. I mean, I have heard some rumours recently about some reality TV stars who are pretty big and I, and how much they've paid off the some of the tabloids Interesting. to keep some very juicy <gasps> I actually am thinking stories. of one of the ones you're even talking about. I hate dropping these not completed I, tidbits I on we, the podcast. Well, we it's libel. But yeah, big famous reality TV star. There was all sorts going on at one particularly well-covered wedding. Yeah. This year. That's all we can say. That's all we can say. Getting nervy. Right, guys, that is highly interesting. Thank you, Kathleen. I am rustling my paper you notes. You are. You because... raised a scooter over there. Oh, well, don't, because we know she's not a good gal. Okay, to end, guys, I would like to turn our attention to Jimmy Savile. A real cheerful ending for the podcast. <laughs> no, so I have a genuine ethical question I want to ask you, Kathleen Johnston. Go on, Alan Halls. <laughs> Or our alter egos, listeners, which we can introduce you to for the first time, Kathleen Haddock and Eleanor Codd. No, no Kathleen Codd and Eleanor Haddock. Kathleen Codd and Eleanor Haddock. I think we did introduce them maybe a few episodes ago, but it's only the eagle-eyed listeners that might have heard us actually say it. Yeah. Back to Savile. Back to Savile. So, look, I am saving you the grotesque, uh, nightmarish experience of actually having to watch four episodes of BBC's The Reckoning. No one should watch it. It's it's not good TV. It's very distressing. However, I would say as a as a discussion point, it's really interesting. So the reckoning is all about how Jimmy Savile, as the victims say, groomed the nation. How he became famous, how he used his fame and positions of power with people like Margaret Thatcher and the police and people at the very top of the BBC to get complete access to young children and abuse them and rape yeah. them. Um and what's really interesting from an arts perspective is Steve Coogan playing the role of Jimmy Savile. What does that do for his career? Why did he take that role? Is it ethical for him to play someone who is so evil, who is so in recent memory? Secondly, is the is doing a dramatization of such horrendous events ethical? Should it be a documentary? What is the what is the upside of doing a drama versus a documentary? These are all the questions that have been floating around yes. the reckoning. So I have a pretty hard line approach on this. Okay, I'm not gonna tell lie. Me. I was like, why would I watch that? Yeah. I saw a review and really only read the top line, but I was like, that chimes with exactly how I feel, which is no one needs to see Steve Coogan simulate sexual abuse of a dead woman. I just don't want to see that. Yeah. I do not want to take that in I feel like the casting of Coogan while I understand it and I get that he wanted to have a serious role and he wants a BAFTA and all the rest of it I think it's inappropriate I think to have a comedic actor play a role like that this close to what actually happened hundreds of abuse victims I think it trivialises to an extent what actually happened I also find it really weird that the BBC are covering this as a drama I think who the hell makes dramas about sexual abuse and paedophiles really like was there a Michael Jackson drama no there wasn't like these topics should be treated with the severity that they deserve and I think it should be done in documentary form I think the BBC do a lot of self-flagellation and don't get me wrong I know that they can be problematic in different ways but I also have real respect for the BBC as an institution I think it was just fucking idiotic for them to to be the ones to make the show like I see why they did it they did it because they didn't want anyone else getting to the story first and having this kind of horror show look at the BBC yes I totally get why they wanted to like own the narrative but I still think it's a little bit what's the word like voyeuristic 
Exactly that. Voyeuristic. It really ties back. We've done an episode on this and I'll have to trawl through the archives to know what it was, but it's very trauma porn, you know? Yes. Like, why do we need to make entertainment out of such horrific suffering? So this is how very much I felt for watching it. Watching it, I would say it's uh, from a TV perspective and I would say that TV dramas are first and foremost meant to be entertainment. It's not entertaining. It's not pleasant to watch. The BBC are so scared, understandably, of actually making the drama in any way interesting or enjoyable to watch that it's deeply unenjoyable, right? Yeah. Because they're trying to make it, they're so scared of making it entertaining that it's deeply dull. Yeah, because you're essentially just watching a paedophile um, assault. Like, young who the hell women. wants to see that? Like, why is that good TV? So, for anyone that doesn't know, not only is it reported that Jimmy Savile abused 400 children over his many decades as a DJ and BBC presenter for places like. Jim will fix it and Top of Pops. He also was accused of necrophilia and would abuse people in morgues and hospitals. Very, very dark stuff, which we don't need to get into here. But um, on why the show was created, what is quite interesting is that actually the vic- some victims of Jimmy Savile's uh, are believed that a drama was the best way to show, I quote, how Jimmy Savile, Savile groomed the nation. Um, Neil Mackay and Jeff Pope are the people behind it. Uh, Jeff Pope said that he believes that fictionalized drama was the right way to communicate Savile's bullying personality because unlike a documentary, it let them show how the predator is known to have behaved off camera. And the survivors of Jimmy Savile were interviewed for it. Like each episode is actually bookmarked by interviews with the, with the survivors. And it is very much with their blessing, which I think does change. Not, I'm still not saying it was necessarily a right thing to do or compelling drama. Well, it makes more sense, but as you say, they, why they chose the drama route and not the documentary route. Absolutely. And I think the fact that the victims wanted it does change things. Steve Coogan said that the reason he did it was because he wanted a professional challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious. It was his yeah. own narcissistic endeavor not about what was actually best for sensitivity around the role i just think it's deeply inappropriate to have a comedic actor alan partridge playing that role so that was trivializes it all um yes i would say that actually he is a very good imitator it's not really a performance it's an imitation he is actually very horribly convincing as jimmy savile and people and critics have said that as much as the drama is not necessarily good he might indeed win a bafta because yeah, he is really but good that's obviously why he did it yeah and he yes i think very much it's, it's um his, so it just feels a bit grossly narcissistic it, it, it does feels feel like all these people using this horrific abuse case to just further their own careers it does feel a bit like that however i don't know whether it's something that like jeff pope and neil mckay the writer and the producer behind it would have reached out to him being like oh, you would be really good for this role yeah they might have just they might have chosen him rather than the other way around still I think it's all very yucky also I know you mentioned to me off air that the story had done very well at the Telegraph yeah but I think that's a real generational thing like I haven't heard a single person of our age discuss the reckoning like it doesn't seem to be capturing people no I only know one person that watched it my dad was like I refuse to watch it because I already know what happened yeah they were there I think that's the weird thing it's either you were there and you were kind of part of the pop culture narrative as in you were following what was happening on television at the time whatever else or you're too young for it like us and therefore you only know the story within the context of it all being exposed straight after he died it is a really interesting ethical argument so Steve Coogan, the the where he pushed back was they wanted him to do the morgue scene in more detail with a certain shot, and he said he didn't want to do it. That Good. was a detail that wasn't comfortable with. So you don't actually see, thank God, 
It's trauma porn. The unspeakable. It's like the proliferation of true crime. I think as a society, we're getting way too comfortable with watching the suffering of others and that being entertainment. I'm not cool with that. But to devil's advocate, I mean, there was a massive backlash against Dharma, similarly because the families of the survivors were still around. Yeah, and I didn't watch that. I didn't like it. I thought it was inappropriate. Again, it was trauma porn. And everyone said that about it. It was like, you have to take some kind of thrill or satisfaction or kick out of seeing other people brutally abused like no yeah i just think that's fucking weird. i mean i Sorry, have to, yeah I, I started i couldn't watch dharma i found it too distressing same with the with the reckoning i actually i tried to watch it at home with my boyfriend and he was like absolutely not and i was like actually there is no way in hell i can make you watch this it's just such horrible television and like what do you gain from watching it you know what do you come away with well for me i think having not grown up with the bbc at that time i did find it interesting to see how he managed to like just completely manipulate the BBC and how aware everyone in, in the entertainment industry was of his paedophilia. I, I just did find that quite interesting, but from like a horribly like journalistic distance. But do you think wasn't that's in the story any way now with all of these men that have abused their power, whether it's Russell Brand, who we spoke about recently, whether it was Bill Crosby, lots of these figures in the media space abused their power and... It was all enabled by the people around them. Mm. I don't think that was specific to the BBC. I think that that was the culture. So what's really clear in the in the show is not only that the BBC enabled him, but also people in the NHS. That's like, what I mean. Yeah. Like generally, society was still at a place where a celebrity was a god, and they had access to yeah. all these places. As you've just touched on with the NHS, I, my understanding is that Jimmy Savile had access to very vulnerable people because he was treated as though he was different because so, he was a celeb. Yeah. So what's really interesting in the drama, which I feel you'll find interesting as a grown up, did you grow up as a Catholic? Yes, yes, I did. As someone who grew up as a Catholic, I feel like you'd find it interesting because his Catholicism is a huge point of the drama. It basically shows that because he was such a practicing Catholic, he clearly felt such guilt that he had these urges and that he was doing these horrible things to people that he would use his charity as a way to atone. So I mean, that's often the way, though, right? Right. With all these exactly. people, and that's how he managed to get into these corridors of power. Because Margaret Thatcher, for instance, saw him as like this incredible philanthropist and wanted to give him a knighthood even though people in her cabinet kept telling her no because he's a wrong one she did eventually give him a knighthood but he basically managed people like oh well you're giving millions to charity so you whatever whatever all these rumors are you must be a good person and that's how he managed to like make up for it in his weird kind of like Michael Jackson head. Again, yes though. exactly and there's really a really similar. oh my god I'm friend of the kids let me have all these disenfranchised kids to Neverland to make everything like a fun fairy tale for them Absolutely. I mean, there's a really distressing scene where... I actually don't even like talking about it. I actually don't. It makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I do not like speaking about Jimmy Savile, full stop. I think it's just, like, so gross. What I find, not specifically about Savile, but just what I do think is too far with this drama, and I think dramas in general, when they dramatise real events, is adding fake stuff in so yeah i think that's really problematic yeah so there's this weird thing where he has this um relationship with this guy that he lives with in his flat who he calls son and makes him call father and they both like essentially rape women together in the flat apparently that wasn't true and they just so added why put that it in, in there so what benefit does that have to the victims it's or like, anyone it's already so fucked up i don't understand why you need to make it more fucked up and like, it's not meant to be sensationalist right it's i like, just think it's so obvious what they're trying to do therefore yeah and they have this really distressing scene with the mother who clearly well in the drama it's suggested that the 
the, the mother very horribly knew that Jimmy Savile was a paedophile and was very upset by every success he had because it got him closer to children and that she has this confessional moment with a priest in confessional and is like I think my son has evil within him and there's this whole like very sad scene where she does this c- confession and it's just like well you had no idea I mean it just feels wrong to Wait, have so that what are you in. saying sorry as in did that actually happen no I mean no I, d- I, d- I think it's made up how, right. would, how would they that's know speculation the mother's dead the mother's been oh, dead okay. like right, right, 30 right. years so that is absolutely Absolutely not based in personal testimony. No, no, they no. have just guessed. Yeah, that his mother knew that he was. That evil. is really problematic. Yeah. I do not think that that's at all so that's, acceptable. That's where ethical. I find it really problematic. It's adding in fake, twisted, fucked up stuff when it's already so diff- yeah. horrible as it is. I mean, I don't know. It's a really, it's a really interesting ethical quandary. Yeah, I don't really want to leave the podcast on that note because I feel like it's a bit sad. So I'm going to give you guys an inane piece of fluffy celebrity gossip. Oh, yes, please do. Well, Gwyneth Paltrow, guys, stop the press because she is planning on buying a house in Cornwall. (gasps) Why is everyone moving to Cornwall? The poor Cornish, they absolutely hate us. Honestly, so apparently Gwyneth is looking in Polzeeth. But that is not the celebrity enclave of Cornwall. Turns out Kate Blanchett, Jason Statham, Jamie Dornan and Stanley Tucci all have homes in Morganporth. I could be butchering that. Cornish honeys, let me know. It's M-A-W-G-A-N. You know, the like, I'm not very good at the Cornish accent, but it is now often known as Hollywood on Sea because of the ridiculous uh, influx of famous faces. It's only four miles from Newquay. Did you go to Newquay in year 11? Have I told you my grandparent Newquay story? No, but I'm ready for it. It's so funny. Basically, everyone, well, not everyone, it was a big thing, I guess, in some schools to go to Newquay after GCSE. Yeah, a very big kind of British cultural uh, coming of age thing. The idea is that after GCSEs, when you're 16, on your kind of first independent holiday with friends, everyone goes to this surfy seaside town yeah. of New Key to Cornwall. basically get paralytically drunk yes so my parent my dad was headmaster my mum was a teacher very much a quite strict household I would say it's kind of unfortunate for you because they were like attuned to what kids were actually doing whereas yeah. my parents had no idea what was going on in New Key. they were tuned and also just quite strict and so my parents refused to let me go to Newquay I pleaded and pleaded eventually a compromise was arrived at which is I could go for half of the amount that all my friends are going and my which is so funny as well because it's like like they obviously wanted to you know stand their ground but actually if you're there for four days I mean just as much can happen in that time I think I was there for two nights altogether you probably went more crazy exactly I'm just gonna get more drunk faster anyway and because my grandparents lived in Devon the compromise was that my grandparents would go and spend three nights in Newquay. To no, keep, stop. I'm they not did joking. not. Yes. You brought your grandparents to Newquay. <laughs> I'm not that joking. I didn't. How do I, I not know this story? I don't say, but it gets worse. My parents, my grandparents rent a Airbnb in Newquay for the three nights that I'm there. The compromise is that after the third night, they will drive me home to Devon. I am literally mortified about this. As me and my friends drive into Newquay, who do I see but driving past the car at the exact same time? My grandparents and me and my friend Mish. I hadn't told. I was my... going to say, had you told everyone? No, I By hadn't... the way, this is what's actually going down. No, my I grandparents are coming. I hadn't told them. So I don't blame you. Me and I my would friend also Mish not have communicated that. No, we were off to get milk. We were off to get milk, and my grandparents drive past us, and my granny is like, Eleanor, Eleanor. 
and I had to be like, oh my God, going around. Fancy seeing Hello. you here. Yeah. And Mish was like, what is wrong with you? I can't actually, I think I've like kind of scarred it out of my brain. Yeah. I don't know. I think I must have said A like, trauma. They just response. happened to be here. Anyway, when they picked me up, I have to say, looking back, I was so grateful. I was so ill. <laughs> I was being sick all the way home in one of those car sit bags in the car back to Devon. I, ha- I have never felt worse. From a hangover? From just, yeah, three days of essentially poisoning. I had alcohol. It was really poisoning. shit cheap alcohol, I remember as well. Oh, because you could barely awful. get served anywhere. So you had to buy really weird alcohol from weird places. I had this worst face, fake ID. I remember we all got these like fake driver's licenses for Nuki and they didn't even have signatures on them. How we thought we could use that anyway. <laughs> and did it but, work? Yeah, I mean, it does work quite often, but there was also some other bars. I remember, did you go to the one? It was called like Treetops or something. And because they were doing an under 18s night, they obviously couldn't serve alcohol. So they had this weird oxygen like option instead so they were charging fucking 10 quid to 16 year olds to have this oxygen for 10 minutes I mean absolutely we didn't go to any clubs or bars we only hung out on the beach we mostly hung out on the beach (laughs) I remember at my drunkenness people were in a ring on the beach singing happy birthday to someone and I just charged in the middle of the ring and threw up Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing I always think of when I think Newquay is the Witch's Hotel, you know, from the Roald Dahl film. Oh, yeah. It's on the corner um, of that beach. Always think of that. I loved the Witch's. It's apparently meant to be a very nice hotel. Oh, really? This fashion blogger I like in the fro went and stayed there. Yeah, and she did some posts from there. It looked lovely. What is the one thing we should know about a Witch's foot? They have no toes and they are square, well, rectangle. Yes. Of course, and they are also bald. Yes. Although they did actually change that, apparently, for the new film, because it was like um, one of those points that obviously in hindsight, it's really disrespectful to assume that women that don't have hair are witches, especially given the context that often it can be people that are going through chemotherapy. So, you know, there was the whole, that was it. It's not about the new film. It was, there was the furore around Roald Dahl books being amended for a modern audience. That was one of the changes. So the grandma's now like, there's nothing wrong with having no hair, but whereas obviously previously they were like, all witches are bald. If you want to know they're a witch, pull off their wig. Yes, I mean, there's this whole massive thing, this whole reckoning, I'd say, in culture generally, particularly with Bond villains, of, like, immorality being equated with ugliness. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to have physical deformities or be ugly to be seen as truly evil. Whereas now we, in fact, know that some of the most beautiful people in the world are actually the most ugly on the inside. Yes, exactly. In fact, Megan Nolan wrote a very good piece to Telegraph all about our very toxic uh, conflation of immorality and ugliness. Ooh, I'll go and have a look at yeah, that. It's really good. Well, right. I think that's quite enough for today. Honey, if you have any recos, let us know as always. Oh, I should say that we've received a message from the other Han about how we should do a whole episode on PR relationships to do with Taylor. Oh, yes, okay. We're going to do a whole special. We're going to do PR relationships as a proper episode, guys. It needs full focus. It yeah. needs research. We're going to give it all to you. Yeah. And uh, a reminder to please read Dolly Alderton's good material ahead of the... 16th of November which is when we're going live with our Dolly review and good material special and anything else as always shoot us a DM at straight up pod please do fill in the poll on Spotify and feel free to shoot us some questions see ya love you guys